This Steel Profiles podcast is brought to you by the AISC Design Guide Series. Design Guide 28, Stability Design of Steel Buildings, is available now. Visit AISC.org slash design guides to see what's new and download your free copy today. Welcome to another episode of Steel Profiles. I'm your host, Margaret Matthew, Senior Engineer in the Engineering and Research Department at AISC. My guest today is Rafael Sibeli, SE. Rafael received his bachelor's degree in art philosophy from the University of Chicago and then went on to earn his master's in architecture and his master's in structural engineering at the University of California, Berkeley. Recognized as a seismic expert, Rafael is currently the director of seismic design at Walter P. Moore in San Francisco. Rafael has served as a member of the AISC Seismic Provisions Committee for 12 years and has been chair of the AISC Seismic Design Manual Committee for five years. A published author as well as a distinguished lecturer, Rafael was the 2008 recipient of the AISC T.R. Higgins Lectureship Award. Welcome, Rafael. Thank you so much for agreeing to take the time out of your busy schedule this week to, to do my interview. It's great to be here. I'm really looking forward to it. Uh, I'm really interested in this. In the first question, you received your bachelor's degree in art philosophy, and then you went on to earn your master's in architecture and your master's in structural engineering. Some would say that's an unusual path to becoming a structural engineer. I think everyone would say that's an unusual <laughs> path to becoming a structural engineer. Uh, in my defense, I didn't plan any of it. Uh, it just uh, it just sort of happened. I had a professor in architecture school. You know, this was a master's program in in Berkeley. Who called all of us who came to architecture school from somewhere you know for to the master's program from some other non-architecture program. He called us crab people, people who don't move forward but move sideways. Okay. And uh, get where they're going that way. And I guess uh, I, I guess I was a crab person then, and uh, and became even more so when I switched to structural engineering. <laughs> Do you consider structural engineering an art? You know, art is uh, is kind of a loaded term. Mm-hmm. You know, I I would talk about it as a craft. The difference being that I, I think in art, or at least the way I studied art in philosophy, there's you know, there's there's no defined purpose for it. That uh, it's it all happens uh, it all happens outside of purpose, and you know there's definitely a purpose and and value to structural engineering uh, without the artistic component. But I think the under some circumstances, you know, really good structural engineering can can achieve a level of, of elegance that really brings it up to uh, brings it up to almost art. Almost art. Uh, what would you say is the most valuable piece of wisdom from the world of philosophy that all engineers should be familiar with? Well, you know, I, I wouldn't presuppose that I have a comprehensive knowledge <laughs> of uh, of all of philosophy. I don't think uh, I don't think anyone claims that. But, no. Uh, I often think about uh, Aristotle and his understanding of uh, of knowledge and how he put forward a, a theory of knowledge that has many different types of sources and is a process. And I think that's a, that's a very useful tool in sorting through the different types of concerns we have in structural engineering. Mm-hmm. Some of them highly technical, some of them highly mathematical, and some of them highly practical, how you fit two pieces together. And I think uh, balancing all of those things uh, is, uh, is a process and no one source of information really should obscure or obliterate or trump any of the other sources. Mm-hmm. 
So you're very well known for your expertise in seismic design. Did you go into structural engineering with that as your, your main interest, or did that develop along the way? So that, that sort of developed from, from where I was and, and when I was there. Uh, I was at Berkeley. Uh, I was an architecture student when the uh, Loma Prieta earthquake happened. Oh, okay. That threw everybody uh, for a loop. I recall this was my first year in architecture school, uh, and there was a pretty big earthquake. Uh, not something that uh, I was familiar with coming from Illinois. And the, uh, the, next, uh, the next morning, I recall, the architecture department had put up little Xeroxed flyers on virtually every column in the, uh, in the architecture building. Uh, they were uh, eight and a half by 11 cut in half, of course. <laughs> they said, you know, please look around your workstation for any structural damage. And I thought, oh, well, here oh. I am, a first month or maybe perhaps second month architecture student, and uh, I'm entrusted with uh, doing the uh, post-earthquake inspection and wow. identifying structural damage. Uh, <laughs> did you find any? Uh, I did not find any. <laughs> but I thought that was a, a, a very important event. It was kind of an equalizer, you know, that regardless of you know, what your experience level was, you know, faculty, student, we were all thrown for a loop by this, uh, by this earthquake, and mm -hmm. uh, it, it certainly got me thinking about it. You know, my interest in, in structural engineering really came out of more a, a facility. I started out, getting back to the crab person <laughs> <coughs> theme, I started out studying physics at the University of Chicago, and I, I, oh, I enjoyed okay. it quite a bit. But I, I wanted an artistic component, and so I, I decided to move towards architecture. And eventually I rebelled a little bit against the lack of rigor in architecture and moved back towards <laughs> oh, philosophy. Oh, the architects will love that. <laughs> <laughs> so at any rate, there's, there's been this sort of uh, back and forth or perhaps a, a dialectic between the rigorous mathematical part and the more whimsical artistic part. And I think Part of the reason that I moved towards structural engineering was as an architecture student, I was, you know, that part came easily to me. If, mm -hmm. you know, I was the one student who, if I drew a column on the fourth floor, I would also draw it on the third, second, and first floor. And that, that's something that some of my uh, <laughs> classmates struggled with. And perhaps, you know, to this day, <laughs> some of my clients struggle with that too. <laughs> So you've been a member of AISC's TC9 uh, for more than 10 years, which is responsible for writing the seismic provisions and chair of the seismic manual committee for almost five years. So why is committee work important to you? Well, there are a couple of aspects to it. There, um, one is it's a collaborative effort, and I've always enjoyed collaborative efforts. Even, uh, even when I was in school, I liked to... Uh, do group projects, uh, learn from other people, uh, also help other people achieve what they need to achieve. And that's, you know, that's what structural engineering is about, too. Mm -hmm. Some of the code work uh, really uh, is, is really enjoyable because I like to think about things systematically. And maybe that gets back a little bit to uh, philosophy, if you like, the uh, Platonic theory of forms. I'm, I'm always, when things are more general, uh, they can be more perfect. Uh, mm -hmm. And you yes. know, every built project I've done, you know, there's, 
there's been something that perhaps I would change or some you know or even a compromise to be made mm -hmm. uh, but when you're when you're laying out uh, when you're laying out a design example there are no irregularities there are uh, everything can uh, can work out quite nicely, but uh, in, in all seriousness, uh, some of the code and committee work permits us to to really deal with a problem in a systematic top to bottom ideal form, mm -hmm. uh, and from there we create tools that can be used in uh, in particular cases with all of the adjustments that uh, that need to be made. The committee work, you know, it takes some effort to uh, to work in that form, to be uh, you know, certainly running a committee to make sure that everyone is heard and uh, everyone has a has a chance to uh, to offer what they can offer and also make sure that everyone's uh, everyone's view is addressed. And that in itself is an is an interesting problem and one that I think my personality is is reasonably well suited for. Mm -hmm. What would you tell people that are hesitant to get involved? Uh, I would tell them that the pay doubles every year. <laughs> so you just lied. <laughs> it can be very rewarding. You meet people who are extremely bright and are doing very interesting work and you get uh, exposure to that work and if you're so inclined, you can bring that uh, you can bring that knowledge to your own projects, to your own offices, and it just it adds a level of depth to everything that you do. Mm -hmm. And a friend of mine said, you know, if we don't improve our profession, nobody's going to improve it for us. And this is this is one way of bringing up our standards. So, what do you think is the greatest innovation in seismic design that you've seen over the course of your career so far? Well, you know, the uh, I guess the easiest answer for that would be the buckling restrain brace, which has solved a lot of the problems that we've had with uh, traditional braced frames. Which, mm -hmm. you know, the uh, the buckling of braces is a uh, is a very uh, special type of behavior that creates a lot of issues in the both the uh, performance of that system and in the performance of the buildings. Uh, that contain that system, so that's you know that's been a very important innovation. But I think it hasn't been as transformative as other changes. And probably in the last ten or fifteen years, you know, the the bulk of my career, uh, we've seen a growth of what I, I heard described as analysis-based design. You know, real intensive. Uh, analysis, especially in uh, in seismic design, but in other areas as well, that ideally represents the real behavior of these systems under extreme events. Mm -hmm. As I said, it's uh, certainly important for seismic design. It's becoming more important for wind design. Blast and progressive collapse are are important uh, areas in this. And I think that has been transformative and has the potential of being uh, even more so. And uh, not always beneficially, uh, <laughs> usually beneficially, but uh, it generally creates greater freedom. Uh, ultimately, after a few decades of, uh, of uh, gaining knowledge, I think our, our tools would become more accurate. Mm -hmm. You know, the, the extreme events may not be that predictable, and that's always going to be part of the uncertainty, but I think our, our tools will get better. Uh, so it's giving us greater freedom than we felt we had, especially in seismic design for some areas. But I think 
our understanding of how to use these tools probably lags behind the capability of the tools. And I think I'm continually surprised uh, by the use of statistics in sifting through or sorting through the results of, uh, of some of these complicated analyses. And I think sometimes we don't do a good job of identifying the, uh, the meaningful data Mm -hmm. and we perhaps need to spend a bit more time in developing that part of the methodology as well. So then looking forward, what advances do you predict for seismic design and construction in the next 15 years? What's going to be the next big thing? <laughs> you know, I don't know that uh, I, I don't know that the next big thing will be in seismic design. I'm not saying the the problems there are solved, but I, I sure. think the uh, I think the construction industry itself you know, you, you see in time and again graphs of how uh, productivity has increased in, in different sectors of the economy and uh, construction has probably lagged in that, uh, in that productivity uh, boom. And probably there's, there's room for an increase in efficiency. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, I, I see more and more modular construction and again that that can be transformative, but that doesn't necessarily mean it's it's good. Uh, but we're, it's something we're going to have to deal with. You know, I think when you look at uh, uh, school campuses, you see modular buildings. Mm -hmm. you know, often they're there in a uh, quote temporary <laughs> unquote yes. uh, capacity, and uh, and they linger for for quite a while. And there are certainly efficiencies with doing things that way, and uh, it, those are efficiencies that I think our industry is going to have to take seriously. And perhaps we can have products that are a bit more innovative and interesting than just a, a modular rectangular building that's plunked down on the site. But I think we have to move a lot of our production, or I, I think there's, there are benefits and efficiencies to moving our production into the shop. Mm -hmm. and perhaps assembling larger pieces. And as we think about sustainability, you know, making pieces that can be disassembled as well, I think there are a lot of interesting problems to be solved in the modular arena. I don't think that it's going to mean that all our buildings are going to look like stacked you know, <laughs> blocks. I hope it doesn't. But it's, you know, it's just a, a different set of tools for architects and engineers to work with. I had an architecture professor once uh, chastise our class. I think it was the first time that we had any serious programmatic requirements to deal with. You know, we had adjacencies, we had exiting, we had all this stuff that we had to do. And meanwhile, we were all trying to be artists and, mm. and touch the heavens. And he said, well, you know, you, you can't just walk onto the court and say, you know, there, there are all these lines here and this net. How do you expect me to play tennis? Right? <laughs> That's part of the game. You've got to deal with uh, all the constraints and still make something that, uh, that soars to the heavens. And I guess Legos are a good example. Legos are the, you know, the ultimate in modular construction. Yes, but, they are. But uh, you can do quite a lot with, uh, with Legos. Mm -hmm. uh, if you were a seismic force resisting system, which one would you be and why? Yeah, well, I'd, I'd definitely be steel. Uh, well, of course. <laughs> uh, you know, I'm not really a, a, a brute force type of person. I'd like to say that I'm I'm flexible. I suppose I you know I might be an eccentrically braced frame, but a, a really flexible one, <laughs> which uh, perhaps 
makes me behave in somewhat unexpected ways, but but still has some strength and perhaps offers a little bit less resistance than you think, but gets the job done. Excellent answer. Uh, I suppose, <laughs> I suppose that sort of design is uh, is iterative, and you know I could be faulted for being a little bit iterative. Uh, what would you say is the most important concept for engineers to understand when it comes to seismic design? I suppose uh, the most important concept is uncertainty. I would add to that ductility, and a third one being that uh, no single concept uh, is sufficient <laughs> in and of itself. There but, is no most important concept. Well, there are a few fundamental concepts. Yes. You were named the AISCTR Higgins Lectureship Award winner in 2008 for your paper on the seismic design of buckling restrained brace frames. Did you consider that a milestone in your career? So that that honor I share with Walterio Lopez. Uh, We worked on that uh, together, and we worked on uh, getting the uh, seismic provisions for buckling restrained braced frames into our codes together. Yeah, the, the T.R. Higgins Award was a great milestone. I, I don't think I was uh, quite prepared for the shock of getting up on uh, on stage and seeing all all those people facing me. It was the largest audience I, I had seen. But you know, I love I love being in front of an audience. That's one of the things I love about giving the AISC lectures, and I really relished that honor, especially because it was a lectureship, and of course the the follow up opportunities to speak. Uh, in various places across the country mm-hmm. was very uh, was very important. I think also for, from the perspective of somebody who works on seismic codes, being able to meet people from different areas of the country, different types of practice, and get their feedback on how they use the code, perhaps even you know how the code is not quite the best tool that uh, <laughs> uh, that they would like uh, and how you know how they would suggest improving it or at least where they uh, where it hinders them mm-hmm. you know that's a that's a tremendous opportunity especially now uh, I realize I'm I'm veering off the topic a little bit but it's all right uh, you know our, our code cycles there's there's quite a lag between writing a provision and somebody implementing it yes. and the closer you know the tighter we can make that feedback loop of you know the people working on the codes and learning from people you know from different types of practice I think the better our codes will be. You mentioned that you often speak for AISC in our seminars, and you are often a speaker at our convention at NASCC as well. So what's the best joke you've ever told an AISC audience? Well, the, the best joke, the one that always gets a laugh, is actually a true story. Oh, okay. Uh, and this was before I was a member of the uh, Seismic Provisions Committee. I, I, I came out of the Structural Engineers Association of California, and as I mentioned, w- with Walterio and others, we had put together a set of design procedures and proposed code provisions for buckling restrained braced frames. And so uh, uh, Jim Malley invited me to come to a, a meeting of the Seismic Provisions Committee. I attended and I, I presented our work, and I also stayed for the rest of the meeting. And part of that meeting was resolving a discrepancy with ordinary concentrically braced frames. Uh, up to that point, they had a response modification factor, R, of 5, but there was another provision that essentially required everything to be designed for the overstrength loads, which doubled the forces, which essentially meant effectively an R of 2.5. And that was obviously lower than the R of 3 that is uh, allowed in uh, seismic design categories B and C with no proportioning or detailing requirements. So that was a discrepancy that had to be resolved, and the committee was trying to figure out how to resolve it. 
the easiest way or the, the best way seemed to be to select an R factor for the ordinary concentrically braced frame that was above three, mm-hmm. but not too high because no one felt that this system had tremendous amounts of ductility. So different R factors were discussed. Four was on the table, then three and a half. And then I think at some point someone suggested R of 3.25. And there was a lot of eye rolling because that <laughs> seems you know, quite precise. And I asked the chair for permission to speak. And I said I suggested that an R of pi would be appropriate. And Hank Martin, who was a member of the committee at the time, looked at me and said, that's irrational. <laughs> so it's a true story. It gets a laugh every time. And I have to tell it every time I talk about ordinary concentrically braced frames. Okay, so then on the flip side of that, what's the worst joke you've ever told? Well, I think this was a good joke. <laughs> and I have to say, I told it, you know, when I did that braced frame lecture, I, I told it 20 times across the country. And I think it always got a pretty good laugh. But, so uh, I'll, I'll, tell you, I'll tell you another story uh, that contains the joke within it. Okay. So when I did that braced frame lecture, I traveled across the country with uh, Carol Pavanka. Mm-hmm. I called her my AISC handler. Uh, and, you know, we did that seminar, as I said, at least 20 times in different, uh, in different places. Uh, maybe a couple of years later, she was speaking at some event in Montana, I think a Structural Engineers Association dinner. And she called me up and she said, how are you doing, Raphael? Hey, I'm speaking at this event and I'm trying to remember a joke that you used to tell as part of that Brace Frame seminar. I said, oh, yeah, I, I remember the joke. And I told it to her. And there was silence on the phone, and she just said, huh, that was it. But it's a good joke. And she remembered it differently? (laughs) You know, it's different with an audience, and, you know, that's that's one of the issues with giving webinars as opposed to live seminars. You don't get the the feedback. But Mm -hmm. but here's the joke, and uh, modified slightly for the construction industry. Okay. There are uh, three people having having beer in a terrace. There's architect, structural engineer, and a developer. And the architect looks down at her glass of beer and notices that there's a fly in it. And she says, huh, there's a fly in my beer. So she pours out the beer, gets herself a new glass, pours a new beer, sits down again, starts chatting with her friends. Structural engineer, he looks at his glass and says, what do you know? There's a fly in my beer. So he takes a spoonful of beer with a fly, tosses it out. And then a couple of minutes later, the developer, he looks at his glass and says, son of a gun, there's a fly in my beer too. And he reaches in, takes the fly in his fingers, squeezes it, (laughs) and then throws it away. So maybe it's the hand motion of squeezing that uh, really, uh, if you're laughing more than the audience, maybe that's the reason. That's the difference. So you talked about that you're very artistically inclined, uh, and I hear that you're very talented artistically, and that you create pancake works of art. That's one of your mediums, pancakes. Yeah, well, whether they rise to the uh, level of art, I'm not sure. None of them have been uh, worth saving. I think. <laughs> they, they all disappear pretty quickly. Uh, but I, I guess, you know, again, it's a craft. It does serve a purpose. Mm-hmm. But, you know, I, uh, and again, I like the audience participation. Sure. Uh, I think for uh, my older daughter's uh, sixth birthday party, we threw a... Uh, pancake and pajama party and uh, her friends would uh, would give requests and I'd see what I could do on the uh, on the griddle that was a lot of fun oh so you just had to make them all up as you went right whatever they wanted yeah well the, after the first fairy princess there were a lot of fairy princesses wow you can make a fairy princess pancake not not here not today <laughs> that's impressive yeah but uh, next meeting if you uh, if you want to bring an electric griddle uh, I'll bring my uh, I'll bring my tools and we can see what we come up with I'm gonna request that 
I'm going to tell the meeting planners. Oh, for a committee breakfast. That'd be perfect. That would be That perfect. is a great idea. I'm making I, notes. Okay. <laughs> and now I also hear that this artistic talent also extends to the Halloween costumes for your family, that Halloween's a big deal in your family. Uh, yeah. It's something I... I don't know. Again, we, we didn't arrive at it in any sort of purposeful way. One year we were reading a lot of stories of the Greek myths. Around Halloween time we decided we would be Greek gods for Halloween. And that was a lot of fun making those costumes. Uh, I was Zeus. My wife, Rochelle, was Medusa. She always likes to have a little bit of a sort of witchy theme when she can. Uh, and uh, you know, I was especially proud that uh, my two daughters were uh, Athena and Artemis, so you know, the, the virgin goddesses. Which, uh, and we had great fun making the costumes. Uh, I got to use a French curve. I mean, literally, <laughs> literally use a French curve for the uh, crest of Athena's helmet. And I, I have to admit that I cut the bristles off a drafting brush for that uh, for that crest. <laughs> that was a pretty good repurposing. <laughs> yeah, I hadn't used that drafting brush in a while. Well, and I was going to say, wow, that's what you use a French curve for. <laughs> I never knew what you really used those for. <laughs> so, yeah, the next year it was Lord of the Rings and then uh, Chronicles of Narnia. And this year was the uh, Knights of the Round Table. Again, you know, it's just whatever we were reading as a family at mm -hmm. the time. We just had our... Halloween party, the Knights of the Round Table, and my uh, uh, my daughter is having her 10th birthday, and she's having a slumber party, which is an all-night slumber party, so we're using the costumes again and having jousting practice. Oh, wow, jousting yeah, so for 10-year-olds. All, all night with a K, I, you know, a bad pun, I couldn't be prouder. <laughs> yeah, no, we decided not to have them joust against each other because uh, none of the parents would sign the waiver. I wouldn't think so, no. Uh, who were you? What characters were you from Lord of the Rings? Lord of the Rings. I was Gandalf. Excellent. Rochelle was uh, Galadriel. Alessandra was Arwen. And Olivia was Frodo. Oh, you got a hobbit. Yeah, we got a hobbit. At one point in the melee of our neighborhood uh, Halloween <laughs> party, there was a car trying to back out through you know, the, the crowd of kids on the sidewalk. And so we, I had to hold them back as Gandalf shouting, you shall not pass. <laughs> These sound like pretty fun parties. Uh, they are pretty fun. Uh, have you ever had any run-ins with any famous athletes? Uh, it sounds like you, you know something, and I'm, I'm not quite sure how you'd know this, but the only one that I could think of was in Spain in 1982. I went with my brother, and um, we wanted to see the uh, World Cup games. Mm -hmm. We were arriving at the airport and set our big suitcase down, and uh, Diego Maradona tripped over it. That's the only run-in I can remember, but perhaps there's a, another one that, uh, that I'm forgetting. Well, I do have my spies, yeah. and I was given this question, but I wasn't given the story, so <laughs> I assumed that was the same thing. Well, what yeah, happened well, he, uh, after he, he tripped? Uh, he got up. That, that's about it. It's not, it's not a great story. It's not one that I tell at any seminars or anything. Did you but get to talk to him? Uh, no, no. Oh, no. well. Yeah. You know, it's funny, at some of these committee meetings, sometimes you know, people start talking about sports, and it sort of leaves me a little bit behind because I'm not a I'm big sports follower. I guess there's only so much time in a day, and if mm -hmm. you're busy making pancakes for the and kids in Halloween costumes, costumes uh, something's got to suffer. <laughs> but uh, we're, we were talking, I said, the, you know, the only uh, sport I follow is chess. <laughs> you know, and I, I won't watch it if it's timed. You know, that's just not. That's just Pure, too fast. Yeah, it's not fair. 
But I used to play. Well, I, I play chess, of course. But I, I used to. I, I'm not opposed to athletics. I played, <laughs> I played sports in college. I'm you know, very proud of our uh, Division Three <laughs> soccer team I played on. Well, soccer's finally getting yeah. really big, and it has a, quite a big following now in the U.S. Yeah. So you were before your time in 1982. Yeah, I, well, if I had tried to play today, I wouldn't have made the team, I'm sure. <laughs> <laughs> so you travel a lot, obviously, spend a lot of time in hotels. So tell us about your as yet unpublished hotel swimming pool guide. Yeah, so I get a bit of grief from this in the, in the office. They can always tell if I'm planning a trip because I'm on Google Earth, you know, trying to assess the size of a swimming pool. <laughs> So that's the biggest criteria for the hotel you stay in. Well, yes, it's. Uh, I, I'm not a big fan of the of the hotel gyms, but if there's a you know a decent swimming pool, 25 yards or so, I can uh, I can relax uh, either after a day of meetings or uh, or if I can manage to get up early enough uh, before. It's something that has a little bit of a meditative quality to it, and also gets me clean. <laughs> So that's what your hotel swimming pool guide is, is just you have ratings for different ones? It's, it's either black or white. I can swim in it or I can't. <laughs> so if it's a 15-yard pool you know, on the roof, it's, it's not something that I'll swim in. But uh, uh, near AISC's office in Chicago, there's the uh, Intercontinental that has a nice 25-yard pool. So what's the one thing that you know now that you wish you had known at the beginning of your career? I suppose uh, my my thinking about uh, how our sources of knowledge has has evolved. I think early on in my career, I had a, an understanding of codes and code equations that they were scientific and they were absolute truths, mm -hmm. and I could use them as first principles and extrapolate from them. Later on, I learned to be let's say skeptical of that, and now I've learned to simply weigh that source of knowledge and compare it and integrate it with other sources of knowledge. And mm -hmm. I, I think if I had a better understanding of the process by which those equations were developed, uh, I would have arrived faster at the conclusion that I need to you know, do a little bit more homework, a little bit more research in order to understand what's going on and build solutions that aren't necessarily anticipated mm -hmm. in the codes. I think that's one of the most interesting things about being in all of these committee meetings is seeing how these things do develop, where those equations come from and, and how they end up in the form they're in in the code or in the specification. Or at least they, they carry a lot of things within them. That, yes. you know, there are simplifications, <laughs> there are judgments, possibly even errors you know <laughs> but, possibly but you know they they have value and they have use and they often point you in the right direction so you've done a variety of things in your career both in design and in terms of your contributions to the profession of what are you most proud well you know I'm uh, in my professional life I guess I'm most proud of this podcast <laughs> Wow I said that was a good laugh uh, and <laughs> My wife will laugh at me because I, I come home and from a committee meeting and you know I will I will describe whether I got a big laugh or not and tell her you know what the joke was and then and then you know perhaps get into some of the other stuff that yeah. happened but uh, I've enjoyed just about every built project that I've done. Wow, that's saying a lot. You know, well I haven't done that many, <laughs> but. Uh, 
you know, there's always something that I would do differently. And, you know, it, that is the sort of bittersweet thing about uh, the structural engineering profession. You know, right when you're, you're done with something, you know, it's right at the end of construction and you've, you've identified everything that you would do differently. You know, if only, you know, they would just tear this building down and let us start again. Next time would go so much smoother because you've, you've learned these four things on this project. And yes. So I'm not going to say that hinders the joy and pride, but, you know, that's part of the condition of, uh, of being a practicing structural engineer. Mm -hmm. I think I was very proud of those braced frame lectures I did for AISC not quite 10 years ago. It was an opportunity to sit down and organize all of my thoughts on this system and to think through things that perhaps I hadn't thought through in quite the systematic way that I, I like to. In doing that, I got my, my own thoughts in order and also was able to share those thoughts and get response to those thoughts with an audience. And that was transformative for me in that, you know, for one thing, it, it put me on a national stage. I met people across the country. I started getting emails from people in different locations that had special issues that uh, they wanted to talk about. Also, it did give me that opportunity to, uh, to have a complete rational system defined and documented at least in this uh, in this seminar you know as a as a sort of example of of a complete solution how to think about load path connections in concert with the design of members and proportioning of systems. Taking the time to do that gave me a, a sort of groundwork for other work in structural engineering, teaching, committee work, practice. It was time well spent. Since you're pretty early in your career, I'll check back with you in another 10 or 15 years and ask you the question again. And we'll see what's happened in the interim. All right. Strong It'll way. still be this podcast. <laughs> Well, I think those are all my questions, so thank you so much for, for talking to me today. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. This has been a presentation by the American Institute of Steel Construction. For more information on AISC continuing education opportunities, please visit us on the web at AISC.org seminars. And remember, there's always a solution in steel.